Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's Thursday night. It's about 90 minutes past the seven. It's March the 4th, 1993. And this episode of Top of the Pops. It's all right, you know, I'm a bit shocked by how not catch it is. Anyway, pop craze youngsters, welcome to the final part of episode 73 of Chart Music. I'm Al Needham, they're Simon Price and Sarah B, you're you, and this is Top of the Fucking Pops. So let's talk in. Here we go with this week's Top 40 Breakers. Climbing at number 25, Rage Against the Machine, Killing in the Name. We go straight from Run Rig to the Sting for the Breakers section without even bothering to go back to Frankly. He's getting fuck all airtime in this episode, isn't he? Yeah, mm. basically a glorified voiceover artist. First up, it's Killing in the Name by Rage Against the Machine. Formed in Los Angeles in 1991, Rage Against the Machine got their name from a song that front person Zach De La Roca wrote for his old band, Inside Out. In December of 1991, after garnering a following on the LA gig circuit, they recorded a 12-track demo tape, which they started selling at gigs, with a cover consisting of newspaper stock exchange figures with an actual match affixed to it. And after they sold over 5,000 copies of it, they started shopping it around to record labels. One label, Atlantic, was so taken by it that one of the staff bootlegged it and sold hundreds of copies of it under a different cover, which led the band to reject their overtures and sign to Epic instead. This single, their debut, is the lead-off track from their first LP, Rage Against the Machine, which came out last November, which already caused heads to snap back in the record shop due to its cover, which featured the Vietnamese monk Thich Quan Duc, who set himself on fire in protest at the persecution of Buddhists in South Vietnam in the early 60s. It crashed into the chart last week at number 27, and this week, after an incident that we may discuss later on, it's nudged up two places to number 25. And here's a very selective clip of the video, which was directed by Peter Gideon, one of Tom Morello's guitar students, who filmed the band having fun on stage at the Whiskey A Go-Go and the club with no name. And panel, this is why I was so down on 
Lenny Kravitz earlier because I knew this was coming. Fucking hell, I Fuck. love this song. Fuck. Yeah, I knew yeah. it was coming. And still when it came on, when I was watching the episode, I went, fuck! My diaphragm just twanged a little bit. <laughs> it's like, there's there's a set of muscles. Um, this is actually scientifically proven. There's a set of muscles Ooh. in the neck and jaw that can only be activated by this record. It, mm. It's like a natural <laughs> reflex. You know, like when the doctor hits your knee with his toffee hammer. <laughs> I mean, we only get 23 seconds of it, possibly because the BBC have had their fingers burned, chopped off, put in a microwave for three hours, and then lobbed down an active volcano over this single. Um, let's get to it now. Article in the news section of this week's NME. Rage Against the Machine, who were forced to cancel the last three dates of their UK tour due to illness last week, are at the centre of two censorship rows. The row started after Radio 1 received 138 phone complaints after broadcasting the band's current single, Killing in the Name, unedited (laughs) during last Sunday's (laughs) Top 40 chart show. DJ Bruno Brooks played the original version of the single, culminating in the line, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, repeated 16 times. A spokeswoman for Radio 1 said a studio mix-up meant the obscene version was played instead of the edited clean version. We apologise to everyone who phoned up to complain, she said. It was an unfortunate mistake. These things happen. (laughs) Two days after the Fiore, BBC Two's The Late Show censored the band's live version of Bullet in the Head on Tuesday's No Nirvana Grunge special, which repeated the word motherfucker. Fucker. Disgusting! <laughs> and it's also worth noting that not only have the supposedly down with the kids' enemy have censored all the swear words themselves, but they've also written motherfucker. You know, like newsreaders of the Aventys used to say, skinheads. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the story goes that Brooks had put the record on without checking and slipped off to record a promo or something. Came back absolutely unaware that he'd laid 16 fucks upon the nation. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently was suspended for a week. So there we go. Rage Against the Machine have done nothing else. They've got rid of Bruno Brooks for a week. Amazing. You know, this is one thing that always does my head in about DJs. You know, you'd see them on things like Nationwide presenting the shows. And the minute they put a record on and it starts playing they take the fucking headphones and start blathering on or pissing about not checking what they're actually playing yeah that's insane man i mean i could never do that i'd be listening all the time in case i put the wrong record on or or worse because i don't know if i even want to mention this i've had this massive phobia since the mid 80s about getting a load of mates around to watch a video and as i put it in and it started up i'd immediately think to myself you know what 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 if this isn't spinal tap or drill a killer and it's actually a video of me sat in my armchair having a massive wank with a big gormless <laughs> smile on my face just to clarify Paul Craig I have never ever made or owned a tape of myself having a massive wank and not holding my mouth right but yeah but AI will take care of that <laughs> god yeah deep fakes yeah. I didn't think about that and that fear is lingered you, you know even nowadays you know when I what usually happens is we pick out what top of the pops we're going to do and I send you the video the minute i press the send button i think <laughs> you know what if this isn't top of the pops but me 
unattractively availing myself of my own facilities. <laughs> All I'm saying is, if Bruno Brooks has been as paranoid as me, he, he wouldn't have got himself into this shit. Yeah, I actually DJ'd um, on the BBC about 15 times a few years really? ago. Yeah, uh, I was on BBC Radio Sussex mm. and I was a guest presenter on BBC Introducing um, right. quite a few times. And there was a track I was playing that I knew had a fuck on it. And I sat Ooh. there hovering over the mute button because I knew when it was coming. Yeah. I didn't have the skills to actually do my own edit of the song. So yeah. I had to do it live, like fucking just hit that button for a split second to bleep out the fuck and i did it so oh, that's professionalism bruno wow. brooks that is professionalism yeah <laughs> but anyway again with the early 70s riffage fucking hell yeah rage against the machine are the other band on this episode where i got there first Ooh. and i can't Ooh. claim any special credit for that because it's not like they were some obscure indie band playing in pubs they were already signed to sony well you know epic but they Mm. had the sony machine behind them yeah but what happened was the previous year in 92 promos of this song had started circulating a long long time before even the album had come out Mm. and one of them reached me and one of them reached two djs called jonathan and eco who ran a night called feet first at the camden palace right uh, which was a legendary tuesday night indie night for students that was like Mm. yeah yeah, it was either a quid to get in or sometimes it was free if you had the right kind of flyer and you know it's a bit of a legendary place i saw kinds of saw jane's addiction there i saw sway i saw ride um daisy chainsaw all kinds of bands that became you know a big deal just for free at that club but Mm. jonathan and eco started playing killing in the name by rage against the machine months before anybody knew who rage against machine were and the crowd used to go absolutely fucking mental for yeah. it and people got coming up and go what, what's that song what's that song yeah. that's actually quite impressive because indie nightclub crowds can be very conservative mm-hmm. they basically wanted to hear size of a cow by the mm-hmm. wonder stuff or the only living boy in new cross by carter the unstoppable yeah. sex machine over and over and over or if they're being really daring they would leap about to out of space by the prodigy mm-hmm. so for this kind of funk metal this angry funk metal political epic to get dropped in the middle of a primetime dj set week after week and for people to go fucking nuts to it mm. tells you something about what kind of song it is and w- what it was and it had the same effect on me you know even though it was on a major label i i did have to pull a few strings and do a bit of digging to find out well you know how do i get hold of these fuckers when are they coming over and mm. i ended up interviewing them in the dressing room of the camden underworld right which is where you know that's the level they were at at the time to write what turned out to be their first uk interview Ooh. i've got them i've got uh, yeah i've got rage against machine i've got suede i've got the darkness right, and, yeah. uh, and and wu-tang clan who in various Ooh. ways i can claim as my my personal firsts but yeah i i thought this record was just fucking superb and it's been yes. done to death now and it's become the stuff of mockery for various reasons which i'm sure we'll come to mm-hmm. but if you just try and wipe all that away and just imagine the visceral feeling of hearing this for the first time and uh, as sarah says just what it does to your body involuntarily it's extraordinary it's just a very very exciting piece of music and yet Mm. there was kind of a lot of this sort of thing about i already mentioned jane's addiction but in terms of funk rock or funk metal we'd had red hot chili peppers we'd Mm. had faith no more there were sort of crossover things collaboration things so you had public enemy with anthrax Mm. um and you had ice t with his band body count 
yes. and things like the beat nicks and stuff like that mm. um, so there's a lot of that stuff going around but Rage Against the Machine really fucking carried it off they actually yes. probably more than anyone other than Public Enemy in their collaboration with Anthrax mm. managed to, to harness the excitement of rap and metal at the yes. same time in a way that it, it became horribly influential of course mm. um, yeah. and, and, and it, it does mean that the refrain fuck you i won't do what you tell me has gone from being a kind of critique of uh, the american military industrial complex to basically adolescent petulance yeah and essentially it gave birth to all those papa roach type bands oh yes whose main message was really fuck you mom i won't tidy my bedroom yes that's what it gave us but it's not that's not rage against machines no. fault they can't help that no. and this single and also bullet in the head and bomb track were just astonishing and the thing that Tom Morello does with his guitar it's it doesn't sound like a guitar it sounds like some kind of industrial vinyl scratching or exactly. god knows what he's doing there yeah because there's you know. been so many attempts to make walk this way by run dmc happen again and, and most of them have been absolute cat shit but this lot here they've cracked it by simply having a lead singer who shouts and someone who can kind of make his guitar scratch and he sounds fucking brilliant well he's a nerd tom morello he's a fucking guitar nerd mm. and sometimes in fact i would say nine times out of ten that leads nowhere good yeah but every now and then you get someone like him who has this incredible grasp of technique mm. and does something kind of awesome with it, you know. And again, from a British perspective, here's another example of a trend that started to kick in in the early 90s. Because, you know, if we as British kids were worked up into a froth about the idea of America in the 70s and then were crushed under the weight of American cultural juggernauts in the 80s, the 90s, or, or at least the early part of it, was all about being told by Americans that America was just a shit as our country yeah this was the decade when the curtain was pulled back to reveal people from trailer parks fighting with each other on jerry springer mm. and it's like oh america's actually not all that after all yeah well yeah you know, grunge told us that hip-hop told us that and here's another example yeah you've got zach de la rocha basically saying that there is significant crossover between the US military and the KKK. And the police. Some of those who burn crosses are the same that join forces. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. also, you know, the idea of an American rock band who were properly left-wing, that was a fucking mind-blast in 1993. Yeah, it was. You know, you either had American rock bands who were kind of bozos politically or just didn't really care, they weren't engaged politically, but they could rock. Mm. Or you had had hip-hop acts who did know where it's at politically but weren't really interested in rock so to mm. have the two together was unexpected yeah definitely yeah they were really smart as well rage against the machine they were prone to sloganeering and mm. fuck you i won't do what you tell me is nothing if not a very basic and direct slogan but they knew what they were doing they knew that's how rock works that's how you reach people mm. you're not really going to reach people with um impenetrable marxist dialectic you have to boil it down mm. to a slogan Tom Morello was really fucking smart. He had an honours degree in um, political science from uh, Harvard, which you know, no, nobody expects that from no. a fucking guitarist <laughs> in American rock band. Did you see that thing that happened on um, Twitter in 2018 about this? No. This was so funny. This is the best own I've seen on the internet. <laughs> So he posted a photo of his guitar with fuck Trump painted on it. Yeah. And some book wrote, another successful musician instantly becomes a political expert, mm. right? So Morello's <laughs> reply was amazing, right? He said, 
One does not have to be an honours grad in political science from Harvard University to recognise the unethical and inhumane nature of this administration. But, well, I happen to be an honours grad in political (laughs) science from Harvard (laughs) University, so I can confirm that for you. (laughs) It's fucking brilliant. Nice. (laughs) See, I think that this is actually piss take proof Mm. i think it is bulletproof because it's so serious Mm. zach de la rocha is a a serious man a serious activist who who really cares and really you know that's that's what he is first almost before a musician Mm. you know and um i don't think any amount of recontextualizing or overexposure can really tarnish it it's also another track that is very interesting in terms of what perspective it's written from it kind of zooms in and out there's a kind of philosophical Mm. abstract perspective and then there's a kind of crash zoom to an accusation now you do what they told Mm. you now you're Mm. under control so it's it's very urgent but it's almost mocking poking at you and you know and so there's these kind of dizzying shifts in perspective Mm. i think at the end as well with the coda uh, it's like it's not just Zach speaking, it's a sort of radical ventriloquism where it's like I'm I'm speaking for you now. Yeah, it's like and it's irresistible. It's, it's like the, it's like his voice just becomes this kind of disembodied chant. Yeah, and you know who it belongs to, but it's taken on a life of its own. And it, he starts quietly and gets louder and louder, like he's awakening Goodness. to how things really are. You know. Uh, also, it, it's I don't know about you how how long do you think the final motherfucker is in there? Just off the top of your head. Uh, in your head, how, how long um, do you think it is? Um, eight seconds. I'd say about eight seconds. Right. It, it isn't at all. It's really short because like, the final fuck you, I won't do what you tell me is very emphatic and you can hear the full stop and the kind of mic drop. And the motherfucker after it is just like an extra shoe in the ribs. Mm. But it's very short. You just remember it as a long scream in your yeah. head because that's what everyone does. Uh, everyone just goes, yeah. motherfucker! Yeah. Yeah. But what it actually is is, motherfucker right <laughs> yes. it's short it's really short it's so funny like how it actually becomes something else because it uh, hey man it belongs to the people um i mean it truly is the alt rock come on eileen <laughs> yes. drop it in a wedding see well that said. dance floor go off yes that and uh, and Chop Suey by System of a Down. Those are the two, yeah. Right. I did start to think, I was trying to compose a list of, you know, so- songs that speed up and slow down, mm. which is a risky gambit, mm. but, you know, if you can pull it off, it will get people fucking going. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, yeah, because uh, Lil Louie did the opposite. Oh, yeah. Slowed it down. And, and that was that was audacious as well as salacious. Mm. But there's not very many. There's also my favourite piece of classical music and also the only one that I can name is in the Hall of the Mountain King by Green, mm-hmm. right? And that's a, you, you know the one, and that speeds up a little bit towards the end. Some versions of it, they they really go all out, and which kind of misses the point. You only need to do it a little bit, and another extremely overexposed, decontextualized piece of music that is used. It's editors love it. Just that slap it over a montage of just some chaos happening in a reality show. Mm. It's just like oral shorthand for chaos, hedonism or general semi-scripted skull fuckery. But it doesn't matter to me. Like Every time I hear that, I go, oh, and I get this tingle yeah. of like, I don't know what it is. It's just like, oh my God. Da, 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 da. Yeah. It's like being captured by trolls mm. and borne aloft <laughs> down the mountain by such. <laughs> and I, I realise that it hasn't, in real terms, it, it has not been preserved with its original meaning and it lost that a long time ago. And it's grim to think about the state of America now, which is terrifying oh, God, yeah. and depressing. And, you know, there's 30 years later. And, and I, I think the 
some of the right wing did try to claim this for themselves, didn't mm. they, before they realised what it was actually about. It's that kind of knee-jerk, oppositional defiant yeah. disorder, which is just kind of running rampant yeah. among public life in, in America now. Yeah. When this record first came out, you could be confident if you suffered a miscarriage, you could get medical help mm. and not have to stagger bleeding from one hospital to the next mm. to find a doctor who wasn't afraid of being accused of baby murder. Yeah. It's, like, yeah. it's, it's uh, There's something really bleak about it. It's like, um, I just imagine Wally doing his round after humanity has left mm. the trash planet and finding a little tape deck with, with this in it, you know. <laughs> but this song, man, it's the soundtrack to one of my most cherished memories. <laughs> <laughs> you sure you want to tell us this? <laughs> Six months after this episode, I suddenly find myself in Ludlow in Shropshire. Good start, okay. As a staff writer of a new Mega Drive magazine, got the job straight from graduating nice. from an advert in The Guardian, and I'm fucking loving yeah. it man i'm practically running to work i'm hammering out page after page of copy in a converted mill with a mixture of media professionals poached from other mags and farm lads who could write and those farm lads fucking out their idea of a good night out was getting into a field getting some weed or some pig tranquilizers or sniff some silage uh, a bottle of mad dog 2020 and listen on a tape deck to rage against the machine black sun by Cypress Hill and the Judgment Night soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or they will fucking bang into that. Yeah, Judgment Night, that was the whole gimmick, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like hip-hop act juxtaposed with rock act yes. all the way through. Sorry, carry on, yeah. So, uh, anyway, it's the Christmas do in the local theatre, and I end up sitting at a table with the owners of the company called Roger and Ollie Frey, and their history was fascinating. They they were practically run out of London by the Met in the late 70s because they published a gay magazine called Zipper. And they, wow. they ended up in Shropshire, and they, they started doing catalogues in the early 80s for zx81 games realized no one was doing any actual games mags and they started up crash and zap which you know if you were that way inclined monuments of the 80s and both of them fucking love me so we end up at this table chatting about my future plans and everything and i'm sitting there realizing fucking hell they're talking about fast tracking me right up the ladder and i'm looking at being an editor by the end of next year so i'm leaning in hard to hear what they're saying and then some of the farm lads who've been pestering the dj to stop playing all this christmas party shit and put some proper music on one of them's just run back from his house with black sunday and rage against the machine and told him to put that on and they play killing in the name yeah while all this serious discussion about my career is going on i notice out the corner of the eye that like five of my mates um Miles, who was a greb lad with hair down to his arse and about 50 bangles up his arm. My mate, the accessible games dog, who I ended up living with. <laughs> a chap called Pricer, who was essentially Kurt Cobain, but with more links Nevada. A Welsh goth called Will, who was pretty much the world's first emo, may he rest. And Johnny Sex Cat. <laughs> And all climbed up on the stage and were going absolutely fucking psychobillies at a meteor's gig on each other to killing in the name. And I'm watching this out the corner and I'm like, I fight so hard not to howl with <laughs> laughter at it. I end up blowing an actual snot bubble oh. in front of my paymasters. Oh, Al. 
Wow. It didn't really matter in the end because the night ended with everyone getting pissed up and Ollie absolutely off his box with his shirt completely undone, grabbing the mic off the DJ and screaming, everyone, dance, dance for your magazines. And in six <laughs> weeks' time, the entire company would fall. Oh, shit. Because the financial director had embezzled half a million pounds out of the company. So, yeah. Oh, well, the snot bubble didn't matter that much then. That's all right. No, yeah, it didn't. Yeah. I've DJed to that demographic myself. I went to Baskerville Hall, which is uh, in Hay-on-Wye, which is just inside yeah. Wales, but basically it's next to Herefordshire, which is uh, not far from Shropshire, obviously. Mm. And Baskerville Hall had this massive kind of barn. It's like a disco attached to it. Uh, and yeah, it is that Baskerville Hall, by the way, as in, you know, Conan Doyle. I was DJing for, for a mate's wedding down there. And uh, I was just playing stuff like like Daft Punk or whatever because it was that sort of era, and it and it went fine. But that crowd, they are fucking hardcore, that's for sure, right? Mm. And hearing what you're telling oh, me yeah. now, I sh- I should have played Rage Against the Machine just to see the reaction. Oh, they would have fucking yeah, gone yeah. off, mate. The name, of course, Rage Against the Machine, lent itself to all kinds of fun. Mm. So David Stubbs, um, when writing the comedy pages of Melody Maker TTT, used to have a section every week for quite a long time of uh, every week rage against the machine rage against a machine <laughs> Zach Della Rocha just really swearing about a fucking fax machine or a washing machine or whatever it may be <laughs> and of course I, I'm pretty sure that we had Glastonbury coverage at one point with a headline rage against the latrine <laughs> it did gladden my heart slightly last year or the year before to see how, how deeply embedded this track is in the culture in America and in a good way mm. Al you know the uh, Herman Cain Awards so yes. subreddit um uh, slightly distastefully oh gosh, um, yes. people were, were very defiant about Covid and wouldn't wear masks and all this kind of thing and made a big deal of it on their social media. Oh, yeah. It's uh, assembling their life and death in their memes and posts and yes. inevitably the last ones being uh, yeah I think I'm feeling better and then uh, here's a GoFundMe for the funeral. You yes. know. But um, one of these posted a meme that was George Carlin quote, never underestimate the power of stupid people in large groups referring mm. to you know all the sheep yes. following the rules about COVID and some brilliant wag underneath said some of those that quote Carlin are the same that win Darwin oh yeah nice very good nice so the following week Killing in the Name dropped 12 places to number 35 the follow up Bullet in the Head did even better getting to number 16 in May and they'd round off the year with Bomb Track getting to number 37 in September They went on to notch up three more top 40 hits over the rest of the decade, including getting to number eight with Bulls on Parade in April of 1996 and split up in 2000. A year later, in the wake of 9-11, Clear Channel Communications, the biggest radio station conglomerate in America, circulated a list of lyrically questionable songs that were not to be played on radio because they vaguely remind people of planes flying into buildings, with all 43 recordings made by Rage Against the Machine (laughs) on the blacklist. There's a fucking achievement. Would you care, chaps, to hear a selection of the other tunes on that list? Yes, please. Okay, so, Another One Bites the Dust and Kill a Queen by Queen. (laughs) Right. It's the End of the World as We Know It by Mm. R.E.M. Mm. Jump by Van Halen. Oh, fucking hell, right. I know. Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. Right. Break Stuff by Limp Biscuit, mm. <laughs> Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stones. What? 
Yeah, 9-11 happened on a Tuesday, you see. What? That's, oh, anyway, I know. Yeah, right. So I'm guessing everything's Tuesday by Chairman of the Board was on yeah. that list as well. Benny and the Jets, Rocket Man and Daniel by Elton John. Why Daniel? Uh, he's flying away, isn't he? Oh, I suppose, yeah. Fly Away by Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <Good>. Lenny. <laughs> imagine by John Lennon. Yes, about fucking time. Yeah, Imagine, which is actually against religious indoctrination. So, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Mm. Dancing in the Street by Martha and the Vandellas. What, because people in certain parts of the world were literally dancing in the street at the sight of the towers coming down. But not Dancing in the Street by Bowie and Jagger. Fucking hell, as if people had suffered enough. Yeah, I, but why was the Vandellas one? But I just don't get it. <sighs> Racism. Uh, anyway, no. yeah. 99 Red Balloons by Nana. Right. St. Elmo's Fire by John Parr. <laughs> what a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. Uh, fair enough. The Night Chicago Died by Paper Lace. Okay. <laughs> and Bits and Pieces by the Dave Clark Jesus. Five. <laughs> yeah. But then... In early December of 2008, the DJ John Mortar was so appalled at the Christmas number one race being ruined by the X Factor that he launched a social media campaign to run a designated spoiler. Unfortunately, his choice of single that year, Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley, only became that year's Christmas number 73. But a year later, possibly inspired by a news story about an Asda in Preston getting into trouble <laughs> by playing Killing in the Name the previous year, he tried again and Killing in the Name entered the chart at number eight uh, the week before Christmas. After being invited to perform the song live on the Radio 5 breakfast show on the condition that they cut the swearing <laughs> out and then not doing what the BBC told them, <laughs> leading to Nicky Campbell and Sheila Fogarty having to apologise, you know. the single soared 79 places to number one. Whoa, that's the biggest saw you've ever done. <laughs> Fucking hell, did you hear that? Live. No, I didn't know about it. It was so beautiful. I mean, what do they think's going to happen? Well, yeah. <laughs> BBC Radio 5 Live go up to them and say, yeah, you know that song where you say you won't do what we tell you? Uh, can you do it? But in this case, can you do what we tell you? <laughs> There's a live clip of it on YouTube. And at the beginning, he refrains from the fuck you, but he just builds up and then he just goes into it. <laughs> and your fist... Both your fists and your feet go up in the air. <laughs> yes! And I've got to say, man, that night when it got to number one, it, it did feel like a moment. Yeah, I think that was brilliant. It, it was a perfect deployment of American sincerity in the service of British absurdism. It was great. Yes. I don't think it diminished it at all. It was it was fantastic. I think at the time I didn't I didn't like it because um, I got the hatred of Simon Cowell and X Factor and all of that, sure. But I just mm. thought the way to beat bad pop is with good pop not to beat it with proper real rock music you know by real musicians mm. and i felt that's what was going on i felt like yeah yeah, we, that, yeah. yeah but i've I kind of mellowed about it now and i'm i'm glad mm. that ratum ratm however you say it do we say ratum no no one ever says that i'm glad <laughs> rage against the machine have a number one to their name mm. yeah, yeah. It, it seems only right and and righteous they're always going to be there man that's that's it now yeah Christmas number ones, <laughs> yeah. which now mean less and less, yeah. you know, at a time when it still meant something, there they are forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
(laughs) It is brilliant. And since then, the song has been used in 2012 at UKIP rallies. Fuck And by a load... I know. (sighs) And by a load of Trump-a-lumpers at a Republican Party rally in 2020. Both times, the band told them, quite rightly, to fuck off. Do what they told you. It was live here last week. Great new song from Brian Ferry. New at 22. I put a spell on you. Washington County Durham in 1945 Brian Ferry spent the late 60s studying fine art at Newcastle University and dabbling with local bands until he relocated to London in 1968 to teach art and pottery at Holland Park School In 1970, he auditioned for the role of lead singer of King Crimson. And although he wasn't deemed a suitable replacement for Gordon Haskell, he so impressed Pete Sinfield that the band he went on to form, Roxy Music, was signed to Sinfield's EG record label. They put out their debut single, Virginia Plain, in August of 1972 and scampered up the charts to number four, kicking off a career that would spawn ten top ten singles and a number one with Jealous Guy in March of 1981. However, Ferry also began a solo career almost right from the off, starting in 1973 when he put out the covers LP These Foolish Things, with the lead-off cut, a cover of Dylan's A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, getting to number 10 in October of that year, and went on to put out five more solo LPs throughout the 70s. After splitting up Roxy in 1983, he resumed his solo career, racking up his first and only number one LP with Boys and Girls in 1985, knocking out five top 40 hits over the latter half of the decade. In 1987, he reunited with Brian Eno, however, and commenced work on his next LP, and by the time 1993 came round, it was still being worked on. However, he's taken the time to knock out Taxi, another almost all-covers LP which comes out next week, and this is the lead-off single from it. It's a bash at the 1956 Screaming Jay Hawkins single, which the Alan Price set took to number nine for two weeks in April of 1966, but by this point was best known for Nina Simone's cover, which got to number 28 in February of 1969. It came out last week and he was immediately hustled over to Elstree for a live performance with an all-female band, loads of candles and fishing nets and that French dance where women get thrown about. And this week it's entered the chart at number 22, so here's a clip of the video. All 24 seconds of it. I mean, they're obviously trying to lump in as many tunes as possible and they're clearly fretting about the attention son of the Sonic and Mario craze youth of today, but... I I think you get more of a feel of the song and the artist on an Al Price advert, don't you? I'm amazed it was as much as 24 seconds. I didn't time it, but it mm. felt more like five, you know. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, five years ago, a slot in the breaker section, that's going to bag to you anything from 45 seconds to a minute and a bit of airtime, right. which would be more than enough to make you either want to hear it in full or sit tight and see what's on next. But I feel this is doing no one any favours, really. Yeah, I'm surprised it was 24 seconds, but uh, mm. I think it's enough in this instance. So anyway, Brian Ferry in 1993, what, what's the point of him? I used to travel by Virgin Atlantic quite a lot in the 90s. Uh Uh back and forth to Los Angeles uh, or Las Vegas to interview bands for Melody Maker. And and before takeoff, they would always show you this film um, and it was clearly aimed at the passengers who turned left at the door instead of right, uh, Mm. which which I never did because I'm not Brian fucking Ferry, you know. And uh, on that film, there was a little promotional clip for Necker Island, Richard Branson's private island resort in the British Virgin Islands, no relation. Right. And of course, private island resorts have got a bad rep these days due to the mm. Jeffrey Epstein and uh, the King of England's younger brother affair. Um, mm. But uh, in those days, they were still seen as aspirational. And the soundtrack for that advert, obviously, was Roxy Music. Yeah. The implication being that if you were one of the passengers who turned right at the door and you wondered, how wealthy you'd need to be in order to visit Necker Island? The answer was more than this. <laughs> so by the early nineties, right, Brian Ferry was just this byword, this living, walking byword for affluence and luxury. Mm. That that was his public image, and I guess it yeah. had been since the NME started calling him Byron Ferrari almost um, <laughs> two decades <laughs> earlier. In fact, there's there's an album that he released a year after this in 1994, which takes Ferry's international ruling class shtick to the absolute extreme. Um, it's called Mamuna. And it's um, yes. currently being reissued in a deluxe format, um, as if Brian Ferry Records could be anything other than deluxe. Mm. And it's it's uh, <laughs> overseen by friend of the show, Mark Wood. Hello, Mark. Oh, hey, Mark. And, and the list of personnel alone is absurdly lavish, right? Really? So it includes Brian Eno, Richard Norris out of The Grid, Phil Manzanera out of Roxy Music, mm. Niall Rogers, Pino Ooh. Palladino, <gasps> uh, Guy Pratt, uh, the raconteur, who's another friend of mine. Hello, Ooh. Guy. Um, Maceo Parker, <gasps> Andy Mackay out of Roxy Music, mm. Carlene Anderson, and Ooh. here's my favourite credit, Nan Kidwell, astrologer. <laughs> 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 the album was originally going to be called Horoscope. They had an in-house yes. astrologer for the fucking album. This album, Mamuna, completely passed me by at the time, but yeah. but I, I, I thought I should give it a listen as a bit of background research just regarding where Ferry was at in this era. Yeah. And, and it does that tightrope walk thing he does of staying mostly just the right side of boring mm. while making sure that nothing much happens yeah a couple of times it strays over the line okay um the title track mamuna involves him saying oh mamuna mamuna for five minutes while nothing much (laughs) happens um there's there's another one called gemini moon that's the same and to the untrained ear it doesn't even seem to have a chord change it's as if things like melodic churn are somehow vulgar 
Mm. It all sounds very opulent, and the market value of your house rises by five percent when you play it. <laughs> um, you know, they say you're meant to bake bread or, or yes. make fresh coffee when you've got potential buyers coming around. Forget that. Stick on Mamuna by Brian Ferry. <laughs> the weird thing is, it sounds like I'm sneering at it. I, I kind of enjoyed it. it mm. It's it's the ultimate in background music, but I kind of prefer that to what you actually hear in allegedly sophisticated joints these days which mm. is usually ai generated spotify techno which when you try and shazam it it doesn't have an artist credit do you know right. do you know the sort of thing i mean mm. so all of this is what he was gearing up to when he recorded taxi and god we used to <laughs> we used to take the piss out of taxi at melody maker well david stubbs did oh david the idea being that brian ferry was secretly some kind of northern hick who thought that taxis <laughs> were fancy <laughs> yeah you know? uh, but uh yeah th- so yeah, yeah surely it should have been co- called limo maybe he just thought yeah, you know yeah, i need but- to be i need to i need to like damp this down a little bit let's go ah, taxi yeah, instead. Yeah. or viscount or blue ribbon oh i see where you're going yeah nice or, or club yeah fucking hell how many biscuits sound like brian ferry solo lps <laughs> not united though united wouldn't no no that wouldn't oh, work you united maybe oh yeah you very yes very good is he knighted he's something isn't he he's, he's not the sort who would turn down an honor let's say no. that we know that you know <laughs> fucking hell so um him doing a, a covers album as you say not the first time and i guess he was just doing an album of old standards just to clear the lungs or clear out the pipes if you forgive that mm. so he could sort of gear up for, for an actual album of original material because he hadn't done anything for five years the cast list uh, on taxi is very similar to that of Mamuna, with the addition of uh, Greg Filinganis and Flacco Jimenez. Right. Um, so some big names on there. But the thing with those 70s cover albums, so there's These Foolish Things, There's Another Time, Another Place, and Let's Stick Together, there seemed to be something different mm. in the meaning of them. It was a bit more, I suppose, like Bowie's pinups, in that they yeah. are to be taken in the context of what the artist is doing around that time mm. so he's almost taking those old you know great american songbook standards and recontextualizing them in roxy music's world mm. there were these kind of implied inverted commas around them mm. for me that makes it more exciting and more interesting than just a cynical deployment of familiar songs so roxy music to begin with were all about artfully and gleefully deconstructing the very concept of glamour mm. you know baby jane's and acapulco we are flying down to Rio mm. and all that you know uh, <laughs> but by the time of mamuna that glee in glamour i think has subsided to the blase he sounds jaded with the high life like an older version of the protagonist from brett easton ellis's less than zero yeah, now the party's over he's so tired exactly oh well done i wish i thought of that there is something subtly attractive about that he he sounds as if he finds his own blessed boredom faintly erotic somehow <laughs> i do have and i'm sorry to be that guy but i have a problem with brian ferry being a fox hunter and being a tory Mm. right because Mm. him being a tory is so on the nose and it it just Mm. seems to diminish everything he was originally about oh you enjoy posh stuff do you oh so that means you have to be a tory whereas um i always thought roxy music stood for glamour as a permanent state of the imagination and for Mm. the the democratization of fancy stuff as long as you had the necessary imagination you were allowed past the velvet rope but no it turns out he was just really literal about it you have to actually Mm. be wealthy to experience his world 
of course, the one um, good thing that came from that was that amazing photo of him during a plane hijack. Yes. Where he, he, he could not look more unruffled by what's going on. Um, I haven't seen that picture for a while, but in my mind, he has some kind of pink cocktail glass in his, in his hand. <laughs> if he doesn't, then it's implied. But doing this song, I, I'm not sure that Ferry's kind of blasé posh stick really serves the song very well i put a spell on you the the original by screaming jay hawkins from 1956 is a berserk blues ballad Mm. in a drunken waltz time and hawkins does actually sound like some kind of deranged warlock or voodoo priest Mm. capable of putting a spell on you yes i mean screaming jay hawkins eventually died of an aneurysm Mm. and he sounds like he's halfway to causing that aneurysm on his recording of i put a spell on you ferry being ferry is more functional and precise it's more i put a spell check on you (laughs) we only get a few seconds of it as you say so my main thought during those few seconds despite having just spoken for about five minutes is he could be brett anderson's dad Mm, definitely yeah (laughs) it is an achievement of sorts to take such a unique characterful song and siphon it into this sort of lounge slop. Mm. I mean, I actually do like this kind of opulent sound that he has. Mm. It is very sort of luscious and uh, noirish and, and, you know, yeah, brilliant. But you could do that with anything. Like, I don't know why you would pick this. Mm, to yeah. do that to do in the nightclub style of put a spell on you i just yeah. <laughs> what i i don't understand the kind of thought process behind it i mean yeah obviously the screaming jay hawkins original is just a, a mind-blowing thing to mm. try to listen to and yeah. um you know it, it's been covered by lots of people but um i think the definitive version for a lot of people is the nina simone yes exactly. yeah, yeah. and yeah. i mean obviously he's not trying to follow that he's going completely the opposite direction but yeah it's so ragingly emotional it is like the ultimate breakup song mm. and nina simone's version as in most things she ever did all things she ever did just sounds like she's wrenching the words mm. from her innards mm. in such a way that it might actually put a curse mm. on on your lousy no good ass and freeze your cheating balls the next time you try to use them it's like the ring it's like you hear that song and then seven days later your knob falls off into the toilet <laughs> i just kind of can't get with this really and 24 mm. seconds was was enough for me because yeah. i it's like okay i see what you're doing i don't really know why but you do you brian <laughs> the video is essentially an even more expensive reprise of the top of the pops performance that was on the previous week right it's a bit like a really expensive and opulent cabaret night at tony's trattatoria in heidi high <laughs> you know they've got all the fishing nets hanging from the walls and they've got women dressed up as parisians and <laughs> throwing each other about and all that kind of stuff and it's like yeah that was all right why are we watching this then <laughs> What's the fucking point? Yeah. Haven't you made enough money, Brian? Yeah, you've got to keep himself in smoking jackets and uh, other yeah. smoking jackets. I don't know. I can't, I'm just trying yes. to think, what does Brian Ferry spend his money on now that he's got, you know, the yeah. giant house and the priceless Abyssinian rugs? It's smoking jackets, mm. just the, the whole rooms yeah. of them, you know, like MTV Cribs yeah. went round and people just people just <laughs> lying on the floor crying, I can't take any more smoking jackets. I mean, he's at the point in 1993 where a lot more artists are now. You know, they've been around for long enough that yeah. all they've got to do now is just be there. And anything they do will just get a little ripple of interest and it will get him in the charts and it can just remind everyone that he's still alive and then he can fuck off back to his big collection of smoking jackets. Yeah. So the following week, I put a spell on you, nipped up four places to number 18, but no further. 
But the LP entered the album chart at number two in the first week of April, denied the top spot by Songs of Faith and Devotion by Depeche Mode. The follow-up, a cover of the Shirelles Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, got to number 23 in June of this year, and he closed out 1993 with his cover of Elvis's The Girl of My Best Friend, only getting to number 57 in September. Because you're mine Because you're mine Double A sighting, new entry at number 12 Jesus Lizard and Nirvana, person over guilt Formed in Aberdeen, Washington in 1987, Nirvana, a fucking Nirvana. (laughs) They've just finished recording their third LP in Utero and are currently arguing with their label and themselves over the quality of the mix. But before all that, they decided to donate a track they recorded a year ago, Owe the Guilt, to the Chicago independent label Touch and Go Records, who handled many of the bands Kurt and the Lads grew up on and is, sort of, the follow-up to In Bloom, which got to number 28 in December of 1992. The label put the single out as a double A side, and the other side was offered to the Jesus Lizard, a band who were formed in Austin, Texas in 1987, and relocated to Chicago to link up with Touch and Go in 1989. Despite agonising over it looking like they were riding on the bigger band's coattails, they decided that they wanted in on this double A side business, and donated a track from their third LP, Liar which came out last year. Unsurprisingly, it smashed into the chart this week at number 12, but very surprisingly, Stanley Appel has opted to give the lesser-known band a shine, and here's a bit of the video. So, chaps, what is going on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's quite a fun thing. Again, hats off to the editor of the, of the Breakers here, who had to dab the cold sweat from their brow once more and find a pre-Watershed snippet from yes. <laughs> this yes. video, which is basically mm. just... Uh, gnarly industrial torture I think we could say and uh, the lyrics as well which are pretty horrifying Ooh. apparently uh, David Yao says that it's about a horrible man that he knew in Chicago who threw a woman down the stairs oh right um, so it's about that and also a little bit about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre oh lovely so yeah well not very unlovely in fact but yes puss as in uh, it refers to him being a coward as well as puss to mean mouth as in sourpuss as right, in yeah. uh, yeah. Smacker in the puss, but like the the chorus is, is entirely just sort of ways to say smack my bitch up. Uh. Um, oh, including including plum in the kisser, which is uh, mm. what's that from? What's pal right in the kisser? I don't know. That's uh, that old American sitcom that is now held up as the example of like you wouldn't do it like that anymore. It's quite confrontational, this song. And, uh, yeah, so well done to them for uh, managing to find, again, the clean bit. Yeah. The clean 20 Ooh. seconds. Oh, yeah, Jackie Gleason, the honeymooners. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. yeah. Uh... You see, I really enjoyed this because it's like it's in the middle of... Um, it doesn't sound like anything else. The closest thing, obviously, is to... It's it's closer to rage than anything else. But, um, I mean, journalists at the time used to refer to um, the Jesus Lizard and uh, Shellac, who they really... Um, you can really hear the resemblance. But they were grouped together as pig fuck. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is is obviously quite derogatory, but it's it's as descriptive as anything. It's sort of gritty. Was that Robert Criscow's phrase? I think it sounds it sounds know. like him, I guess. But it's this sort of gritty, grotty, witty, shitty, clattery American noise rock of the time, mm. which is now kind of very well respected and kind of held up as, as an influence on a lot of people. Right. Jesus Lizard kind of made music to accompany your night terrors, really, mm. and lyrics full of worms and amputations and fleshy gruesomeness, right. but all underpinned by a certain intellect, you know. <laughs> you can see why Nirvana would be happy to stand alongside them, because it's very sort of rough and taut and spiky and kind of mildly upsetting. Mm. And a fun name, which obviously sounds faintly blasphemous and flows a bit better than Iguana Nun yes. or Mediterranean House Gecko God. <laughs> there actually is such a thing as a Jesus lizard, isn't there? There is. It's oh, a right. type of basilisk that um, can run on water and looks hilarious while doing it, just to get out of, you know, to get out of danger and stuff. And they go up on their hind legs and go, oh my God, oh, is that a crocodile? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> Turns out that Kurt Cobain always wanted Nirvana to sign to Touch and Go right. and sent them numerous copies of their first demo in 1988, but they kept knocking them back. So presumably this is him either giving a leg up to his favourite label or ticking off something on his bucket list because, you know, he, he can do that nowadays. And there's possibly a bit of, here's what you could of one thrown in yeah and it's them showing that they're still in touch with the underground yes which was a, a sort of touchy subject for nirvana because they were always um, accused of being sellouts and they're very sensitive mm. about that kind of talk we've not spoken about nirvana on chart music yet we're, um, not? Okay. we're not really going no, to no, here no. but it's safe to say that this single is not being sold on the strength of the name of the jesus <laughs> list no it's like you know in the 2014 world cup semi-final one of the greatest football <laughs> matches of all time that, oh, yes. that you could euphemistically say that Brazil and Germany shared eight goals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like that, isn't it? And it also reminded me of, in terms of coattails, you know, you've got Robbie Williams and his mate, Jonathan Wilkes, that he kept trying to foist on us. Do you remember that? Mm. Uh, mm. Or Paul Gascoigne's mate, Jimmy Five Bellies, or yes. uh, Alex Turner's mate, Miles Kane. You do get a lot mm. of this sort of thing. I think the Jesus Lizard are, are of higher quality than those, but it's, it's just what the phenomenon mm. reminded me of. That's How right. much of a deal was the forthcoming release of Inutero in the Melody Maker office, Simon? Oh, huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody wondering whether it was going to be more slick than Nevermind. Of course, once we knew that Steve Albini was on board, not producing, because he doesn't like to be called a producer, you have to say Steve Albini recorded it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you, you knew that it was going to go the opposite way, if anything. Mm. So yeah, absolutely a, a huge deal when the album came out. And uh, of course, um, Everett True, our, our ass ed, assistant editor, was very close with Kurt and Courtney. So we had a bit of an in in that way. Mm. And bands like the Jesus Lizard were covered a lot in the paper. Yes. Not just because they were mates with Nirvana, but because th there was genuinely quite a large sort of uh, faction of people at the Maker who were really, really, really in into all that stuff that Sarah was just talking about. I, I had some crossover with, with that stuff. It, it, it didn't really tickle my fancy so much. I did go and see the Jesus Lizard at the right. garage at Highbury in Islington. Oh, really? and, uh, and your man, David Yao, Yao, you've got to say it like that. Yao. Uh, Yao. He was quite a dynamic 
dynamic performer, very physical, very visceral. He was sort of midway between Iggy Pop and Gigi Allen, that kind of thing, you know. Jiggy um, Pop. Yeah, yeah. You thought he was going to hurt himself or hurt you, you know, on stage. Mm. I quite like the way that he doesn't look like a rock star. He just looks like an ordinary bloke. And you know that normally when people say that, you, you mm. sort of think of cast or The Enemy or something, or those <laughs> sort of sub-oasis bands. But I don't mean in that kind of quite knowing, stylized way where people will dress like a football casual or something. Mm. I mean that he's genuinely not rock starry whatsoever. Um, yeah. the, the, the closest thing I can get is the guy from Future Islands. You know, he looks like he should be running an Italian cafe in Chicago rather than singing in a band. I, I do quite like that. <laughs> the clip that we do see from the video, it's it's great that, that Sarah's spelt out what the full video involves because it's yeah. just all we see is one man shouting while another man does some welding, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, it's the second time I've mentioned Flashdance, but it made me think of fucking Flashdance. Again, like most of the videos on this episode, it's it's a bit questionable. It, it did get banned on assorted channels, both here and in America, because, yes, it does feature the band doing a bit of welding, and by the end you realise that they're welding someone else into an office chair. Right. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, you don't want kids to start doing that kind of shit. I suppose it could only happen in the pre-internet age because mm. these days if the BBC even showed a few seconds of it it would then mean that kids go running straight to YouTube or wherever they get their videos to see the full length yes. thing and that would be considered yep. irresponsible to sort of even sort of mm. give them that kind of click through or that, that push through yeah. but yeah it was, it was fairly safe that the BBC could show this and that is literally all any British people are going to see of it yeah, yeah. to be honest with you if I did go on MTV it would be the sort of thing that I'd see for about five seconds and go oh yo MTV raps isn't on then and flick over and go and look for some wrestling or see what tats being sold on QVC or if I was really lucky there'd be a 70s German sex comedy on because let's recall that the early 90s were a fucking golden age for Tatalite, if you will, <laughs> before Sky made everything digital and fucked it all up, man. Yeah, I'm sorry that I haven't got to see them live actually because they they've reformed a couple of times, but uh, I don't think they're going to do it again. Oh right, they are the sort of thing that I would risk getting COVID for. I've been watching loads of live clips of them and just going like fucking hell. Yeah, that's a that's a compelling act. Really incredible rhythm section and just a, a guy screeching sort of gnomic phrases over. <laughs> and mm. once you can actually understand what they are, it's lyrics that would make Brett Anderson and blush like <laughs> beneath a broken branch face down in the grass no mason or bricklayer he a trowel was in his ass <laughs> <laughs> that nice. does something for me i don't know why but yeah he's very big on uh, audience interaction and uh, kind of climbing into the audience and taking all his clothes off at the uh, not necessarily at the same time but you know who wants to be welded into a chair tonight <laughs> then <laughs> it seems like um, Yao, David Yao, Yao, seems like a really intelligent, interesting guy. He's uh, he's really into photography mm. and cookery and graphic design. Any interview of him with with him, you just realise he has a, a very amusing turn of phrase. And he released a book. He's a big cat guy as well. He released a book of, of right. cat illustrations. And David um, Meow. Exactly. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, I didn't trample on your joke there, did I? <laughs> no, that's fine. I've got more. Don't worry. He interviewed sadly departed celebrity cat Lil Bub for the AV Club, Ooh. which is a truly delightful four minutes where he asks Lil Bub things like, have you ever been naked on stage? And Lil Bub supposedly replies, I'm always naked, David. <laughs> What's Lil Bub famous for? Just um, 
You know how they have celebrity animals these days. Oh, right. She had all sorts of genetic malformations and was, you know, sort of extremely cute. But um, uh, the guy adopted her when nobody else wanted her. And it was just a, you know, it was a lovely story. And he made some money, but mostly gave most of the money that Lil Bub generated, he gave to charities. And so, you know, so, yeah, oh, it was very nice. Bless. Yeah. You, you, Lil Bub, me, yow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> Was that an actual cat replying Bit then? Bit of cat content there Amazing. for you. So the following week, Puss slash O oh, the Guilt dropped 52 places to number 64. And Jesus Lizard's next and last chart appearance with Down was in September of 1994 when it got to number 64. Meanwhile, Nirvana's next release, Heart Shaped Box, got to number 5 in September of this year. That's off Stanley Appel. Yeah. Getting down with the kids. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One step up at number 11, the brilliant new song from Madonna from the album Erotica, Bad Girl. We've done Madonna eight fucking times on chart music. (laughs) And this, her 34th single, is the follow-up to Deeper and Deeper, which got to number six last December. It's the third cut from her fifth LP, Erotica, an album and an era where Madonna uncharacteristically did a sex, <laughs> publishing a slab of coffee towel Ponscrot at the same time, which sold a million and a half copies in the first month at $50 a go. But 1993 has started badly for her, with her latest film, Body of Evidence, getting coated down across the world, and she's not enjoying the current film she's working on, Dangerous Game. Meanwhile, this single is a new entry at number 11 this week, so here's a clip of the video, which features her as an entrepreneur called Louise Oriole, who cops off with loads of blokes, with Christopher Walker being roped in in one way or another, I don't know. So, yeah, it's it's been a while, hasn't it, since we've done Madonna? (laughs) So to speak. And thus far in her career, Madonna's been a post-disco party girl, a vixtress, Marilyn Monroe, a pregnant teenager, uh, some sort of flamenco dancer, Dick Tracy's girlfriend, Black Jesus's girlfriend, a bollock naked hitchhiker, and now she appears to be a dead body. What a great... I'm sorry, that how can, you, you can't read that and just go, what a great CV. <laughs> She's only 10 years into her career. Yes. There is a reason why... Madonna has been on like every other episode of this podcast. Mm. It's because she put herself there. She put herself at the centre of pop culture and the pop charts and just stayed there for decades like no one else has done. So, you know, I'm afraid that's what you get 
being alive at this time, it's it's Madonna's time, and the gases will never converge mm. in this way again in the universe. So you know, you <laughs> might as well, you might as well enjoy it. You might as well enjoy it. I know we might as well call this the Madonna and Shaking Stevens podcast, and I've done a with Depeche it. Mode. Yeah. yeah. Oh God! Imagine yeah. if them two had done a fucking single together. Imagine <laughs> if Madonna had done a rocking Good Way instead of Bonnie Tyler. Fucking hell! Yeah. The universe oh. had fucking collapsed in on itself. I had this album on cassette, obviously, oh, and. Uh, I loved it, and I I like a lot of her ballads, to be honest, which is, this is like the Type C Madonna song. Mm. It's quite nothingy, but it's moody, it's got an evocative sound palette, it's very nicely produced. The video is quite a ravishing little mini-movie, directed by David Fincher. Indeed. Um, mm. After Mark Romanek, who's done everything else in this episode. He yeah. passed on it because he was busy doing something else. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's Christopher Walken. This is one of only two videos that Christopher Walken has ever done. That's right. And the other one being a Weapon of Choice by Fatboy Slim, mm. which is a video, it's the best thing Fatboy Slim ever did, but the video is, is so much so much better than the song. It's actually fun to put the video on and um, just put other stuff to it mm. and just see Christopher Walken dancing to anything else you can think of. Yeah. By this time, Madonna could have just done a video dressed up as a giant fanny with arms and legs, and you know, by <laughs> 1993, people are just peaches, go, basically. Oh yeah, 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 peaches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and people are just shrug because it's it's not that people seem to be bored with Madonna by 1993. This is her 10th top 10 hit so far in this decade, and we're only 27 months into it. But no one's capable of being shocked by Madonna anymore. You know, that's who she is. This is what she does. It's successful. Good for her. Yeah. There's a really good article in The Atlantic that I read um, mm. recently by Sophie Gilbert um, called What Madonna Knows, <laughs> and it explains better than I can how Madonna's entire everything is essentially performance art mm. and uh which and cindy lauper clocked this after the uh, mtv music awards where she sort of put on a wedding dress and showed her pants to the world mm. and everyone was scandalized and cindy lauper went oh, I, I know what she's doing yeah. and that's what she's always done she's very very good at it yeah and the video is directed by david fincher who got his start as assistant cameraman on return of the jedi and indiana jones and the temple of doom then he did the usual route he did a load of ad then he got into promo videos which are just longer adverts with a bit of music he did we don't have to for jermaine stewart englishman in new york for sting straight up for paula abdul and then he linked up with madonna to do express yourself and vogue he stepped back from videos over the past two years in order to direct his first film alien three uh, but fell back into it for who is it by michael jackson mm. And the video is essentially Madonna as a sort of high-powered female executive of the early 90s that you'd usually see pouring blue water on a pad with a dry-weave top sheet. And she's going about a business of copping off with a sort of blokes in diners and bars, uh, punctuated by shots of her washing her drawers in the sink and licking cat food off her finger. And Christopher Walken just hangs about and watches on until, as they used to say... It was Moida. <laughs> it seems like a waste of Walken. Yeah. It's a waste of Walken because he's not doing a funny dance. No. And nor is he 
telling a small child about having a wristwatch hidden up his ass, <laughs> you know. And that's kind of what we want from him. Yeah. He looks great, though. Can I just point out, he looks amazing. He's just smouldering away yeah. in a big black coat. He's apparently supposed to be a guardian angel, which is, he's not a very good guardian yeah. angel. Uh, you know, he's not doing his job very yeah. well. Oh, no. Shit one, yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. I, I assume that he was a guardian angel as well, but, you, you know, because he hangs about on ledgers and whatnot, reading the paper about a murderer and all this kind of stuff. But right at the end, just before her last cop-off, he comes back from washing his dick in the sink or whatever he's up to. <laughs> Christopher Walken appears and kisses Madonna, and you think, oh, hang on a minute, you're actually the Grim Reaper, aren't you? Mm. Because right at the end, we see both of them up in a crane, watching the coppers taking the body away. And Madonna doesn't seem to be that arse about being murdered. She's accepted it. She's going to heaven with Christopher Walken. Yeah, you know. fair dues. Come on, wouldn't any of us be all right with being grim reaped by Christopher Walken? <laughs> Did you pause and zoom in on the newspaper uh, that he reads? It's the the New York Post. Tell me more, Simon. Um, well, I, I did. It's tantalising because I couldn't get all of it. I think the main headline is bloody carnage or something like that. It's yeah. bloody something. Um, but in the in the uh, sort of subheading, it says Cape Teen chops hands off dad and then something something <laughs> parakeet maybe feeds to parakeet. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Would parakeets want to eat people's hands though? Probably. Don't they tend to like nuts or something? Or a cracker? If it's in a cage, it's got to eat what it's given and if it if that's, mm. you know, cape dad's hand, then so be it. <laughs> yeah. I, I know it's sort of nominally set in the present tense but i thought the way that she's styled is actually yes. quite kind of 1940s film noir mm. and it's not the first time she's done that which is sort of stepping back from the sort of sexy madonna thing well it's a different type of sexy but it's yeah she looks a bit kind of like something out of a raymond chandler or mickey spillane novel she looks like mm. she'll be called a, a, a broad or a dame you yes know, in this I thought. Yeah. The song, though, you know, like many of Madonna's 90s hits, I've honestly never heard this before in my life. And I know. I, I feel a bit gaslit by the claim that it even exists. And and I had a look, because <laughs> when, when we've talked about Madonna's 90s hits before... Like you said, Simon, it's a proper pointless question, isn't it? Oh, yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah, it is. And And leaving aside cover versions like... Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. If we look at her actual own sort of hit singles from the one prior to this, which is Deeper and Deeper, um, which I couldn't sing with a gun to my head, um, yeah. right through to Frozen in 1998, which I vaguely remember, and then Ray of Light comes after that, and then I could, yeah, mm. I know that, obviously. But there, there are five years of consistent hits, particularly in the UK, you know, some of them top ten. Uh, no, no idea. It's really yeah. weird really yeah. odd yeah you were just you know into other stuff yeah. it's like you know i think much as madonna is omnipresent it, it is also possible if you try really hard to ignore her so <laughs> well i'll be honest i can't stand madonna i really yeah. fucking can't stand madonna so yeah if, if i could ignore her i would so that kind of goes some way to explaining it yeah. <laughs> so the following week bad girl nudged up one place to number 10 its highest position However, in America, it only got to number 36 on the Billboard chart, the first Madonna single not to make the American top 20 since Holiday in 1983. Fucking hell, what a run. The follow-up 
a cover of Fever, entered the chart at number six in April but got no higher, and she had one last squeeze of the erotica tea bag when Rain got to number seven for two weeks in July. She then spent the rest of 1993 ripping up a photo of Joey Buttafuoco, who was famous in America at the time because his wife shot his 17-year-old lover in the face while having a bum-sex-related surname <laughs> on Saturday Night Live in a piss-take of Sinead O'Connor and then rubbing the flag of Puerto Rico against her fanny at a concert. Oh, no. Oh, no. The thing with Madonna is, yeah, I can't stand her, but I feel weirdly protective towards her at the moment because she's getting so much shit at the moment for being an older woman who has, A, had cosmetic surgery, and B, is still, you know, prancing about on stage and being sexy. Yeah. And all the criticism I see her getting, I think, fuck off, you know. I've, I, yeah. You know, I almost find myself becoming yeah. a fucking Madonna fan just to spite them. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Well, you don't yeah. have to do that, but it is, like, in some ways, like, this is what Madonna has always done is she's a genuine provocateur mm. and she's always sought to push people's buttons and in some ways this is I'm, I'm sure it's hard for her she's a human being but also she is well versed in pissing people off and responding to the atmosphere that but she pisses everyone off it's like there are young people on tiktok mm. going oh nana's got out again mm. and like people have been doing that since she was 30 yeah you know? so like she's been well prepared for ageism i'm sure yeah like i said i'm sure it's incredibly difficult but yeah you do feel protective of her because she is daring to still be madonna in the way that she always has yeah. and putting herself into the public consciousness and I don't think it is that it's just she's desperate and she wants to cling to her youth or anything like that because that's not her that's not her deal Mm. I think it's in some ways it's an opportunity for her it's an opportunity to provoke people all you have to do as an older woman is exist and be in public and people are going to have fucking opinions about Mm. it so and she's always loved to it's like yeah give me all your opinions motherfuckers Mm. so I think she's okay and it is inspiring to be honest as you know someone she has been massive for about as long as I've been alive or as long as I've been listening to pop music and I have no intention of um, kind of cavorting around in the Madonna fashion as I as I age but um, well there goes the next chart music live then (laughs) (laughs) well I could be I could be persuaded you know uh, but it is bracing and bolstering to see her as she is doing what she does now mm. so i'm about a year younger than she was when she did hung up right oh yeah you know in her pink leotard and uh looking as that atlantic article says as sinewy as a gazelle right looking incredible and just the sheer force of will and defiance that it has taken for madonna to create herself and sustain herself mm. it's just i don't know it's something to look to mm. as a woman and it, i don't think she did it for anyone but herself but she's not just a complete need monster it's not just um you know she kind of <laughs> she works in mysterious ways you know and i'm glad of it i'm glad that she's still around and doing what she does but rubbing the flag of puerto rico against your fanny that's not on <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's hard to believe I introduced Diana Ross live on this programme almost 18 months ago and I'm extremely proud to do it again with the new song, Heart Don't Change My Mind. We said we'd try again, we 
trying's not enough. You know, it's hard to believe I introduced Diana Ross live on this programme 18 months ago, says Franklin. Cool story, bro. Yeah. That, that's your fucking <laughs> job, mate. Oh. It's like your fucking bin man saying, oh, it's hard to believe I pushed this garden waste wheelie bin a fortnight ago and here I am again. Oh, poor little Mark. No, but he's, to be fair to him, 18 months ago, he was 12. Yeah. <laughs> this is like a formative memory for him. <laughs> he then goes on about how proud he is to introduce her again. It's Diana Ross with Heart, Don't Change My Mind. We've covered Diana Ross a time or two in chart music, most recently in chart music number 18, when she took Love Hangover to number 10 in May of 1976. Since then, she left Motown, went all post-disco with Nile Rodgers, tried to shove Mary Wilson off the stage at the Motown 25th anniversary TV <laughs> special, sonically copped off with Lionel Richie, sweated for a bit in the gym, linked up with the Bee Gees for her first number one in 15 years, faded out in the late 80s, then rejoined Motown, got on the Whitney train and roared back to number two on two non-consecutive weeks with When You Tell Me That You Love Me in December of 1991. This single, the follow-up to If We Hold On Together, which got to number 11 in January, is the eighth Cuts from her LP, The Force Behind the Power, which came out 18 months ago. It's not in the charts yet, but no way is Stanley Appel turning down the opportunity to have the boss in his studio. And here she is. And let's get Diana out of the way first, because she's the least interesting thing about this performance. <laughs> Extremely shared up, I believe. Mm. Wearing a tight spandex all-in-one adorned with a big chunky gold belt and topped with a leather jacket that's miles better than any of run rigs. Mm. I think the overall effect she's gone for here is rose out of keeping up appearances, attending the local biker bash and pig roast. <laughs> She's got black gloves on as well, though. It's like a cross between Alvin Stardust and Mark Almond or something. Yeah, yes. little gloves yeah, with, with, like, it, with yeah. pearl trim, as it turns out. I, I had a jacket like that with, with its own belt. It was brilliant. <laughs> I did not, though, have a sort of bustier top with net decolletage. Yeah. It's, a, it's a sexy get-up, isn't it? Mm. And what would now be known as treggings, I guess. Treggings. Trouser leggings. Yeah, they're kind of wet look, aren't they? Yeah. So that, it's that which is uh, you know very prevalent now, but you didn't see so much in those days. Mm. She was ahead of the curve. Mm. Yeah. I watched it again last night, and it's like, hang on a minute, is she miming? Oh, God. Yeah. That's against the rules. Would Stanley allow this? I think he'd make an exception for Diana mm. Ross. Yeah. I mean, just the whole setup is very unreal, isn't it? That she's in this mm. kind of fake, almost Sesame Street style cityscape where yes. you've, you've got yeah. a walk, don't walk sign. You've got a lamp Yeah, a post. working yes. walk, don't walk sign. It's yeah. a pretend New York street corner, isn't it? It's very, it's quite elaborate. Yeah. yeah. You've got one of those blue bin things for getting a newspaper out of that they have in America. You know, those ones. Uh, are you sure it's that? I thought it it was an American post box. Oh, is it a post box? I thought it was a post box. Oh, maybe. Yeah. And there's a fire hydrant, definitely, you know. Yeah. It's a manhole cover with all dry ice coming out oh, yeah, of it. Yeah, that's what you want. What it made me think of was, and I, I'm sure this was not 
a deliberate reference on Diana's part, but do you guys know the book Rock Dreams? Yes. <laughs> Guy P- Peel. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's Guy Pellet, or probably, yes. Oh, fucking uh, um, Sorry, sorry, Guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's dead now. You can say what you want. <laughs> um, so for those who don't know, he was the um, artist who uh, usually used airbrush, who was responsible for, for example, the sleeve of Diamond Dogs by David Bowie. So I'm sure everyone can sort of mm. visualise his style from that. And this book, yeah. uh, Rock Dreams, it's it's a, just a magical thing it's from about 73 i guess that kind of era mm. and it involved the journalist nick cone uh writing little kind of paragraphs about rock legends rock icons and these kind of imagined scenarios that pellet has, has painted of them so for example you've, you've got the rolling stones several times uh, you know on one occasion they're dressed up as nazis another time they're sort of fetish transvestites and stuff like that you've got bob dylan in the back of a limo um, looking troubled and and all this kind of business you've got sam cook's dead body on the motel room floor mm. diana ross appears in it twice the first time it's the supremes uh, and what we see is an actual streetscape uh, which reminded me a little bit of this it's it's got you know a sort of 1950s looking car or 60s i suppose it would have to be with a massive poster of the supremes on the wall of, of what looks like a very down at heel neighborhood mm. and it's really sort of flagging up the idea that the supremes came from a kind of down at hill detroit neighborhood and they are now very much living the glitzy high life and then a few pages later we see diana and she's solo and Mm. she's um, sat in the back of a limo with loads of jewelry on and a fur stole wrapped around her neck looking really traumatized and frightened as she looks through the window Mm. and sees a bunch of presumably homeless guys stood outside on a on a litter blown street and the text from cone says no cause for alarm even now after all these years great ladies of the music scene came back and cruised the streets and gazed into tenements and floated off down alleys just to check nothing had changed Mm. dot 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 and it's just a really wonderful evocative picture of this incredibly successful and wealthy woman just looking with kind of horror at what her life used to be maybe it's a stretch but when when i saw the sort of um, fake rough streetscape on this performance Mm. i thought of rock dreams thing with diana is and we've done the mortality maths with madonna already Mm. um diana is 48 here which is you know considerably younger than i am now Mm. i just remember at the time and I'm sure this isn't false memory, thinking, oh, who's this old granny on top of the pot? What's she doing there? Which, you know, obviously those opinions come back to haunt you. I don't know that I said so in print, but that is certainly what would have been going through my mind. So I thought I'd have a look to see who is 48 now, yes. just for comparison. And I know we're in a different world where you're allowed to stay young for longer. But OK, so here we go. Um, Melanie Blatt and Shazne Lewis, of all saints, are right. both 48. Um, Will I Am and Fergie, out of Black Eyed Peas. Mm-hmm. Lauren Hill, Scary Spice, CeeLo Green, Enrique Iglesias, Natalie Imbruglia, Katie Tunstall, Jack White, Marion Cotillard, Lisa Scott Lee, Sia, Ant McPartlin, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Big Boy, 50 Cent, Gary Neville, Juninho, David Beckham, and Robbie Fowler. Mm. So those are all 48-year-olds now, which, okay, they're people of a certain age, but you don't think if one of them turns up on top of the pops, well, if Ronnie O'Sullivan did, you'd be surprised. Yes. But, <laughs> but but you know what I mean? It's that, that, that age doesn't seem as completely over the hill as it did then. No, and it's mm. partly because of uh, people like Dana Ross and as well as Madonna and uh, Tina Turner, who absolutely bossed that. Yeah. 
This is the designated heritage act, which starts to pop up on a regular basis on top of the yeah. pops round about this time, doesn't it? You know, last week it was Brian Ferrer. Next week it will be Cliff Richard. Essentially, you know, new singles by older artists that not, aren't in the charts yet, but are looking for something to be on now that Wogan's finished. Yeah, exactly. Something for the olden's, if you will. I feel like this is quite uh, similarly to Brian Ferrer. Yeah. For a lot of artists who were kind of transitioning from the 80s into the 90s, they're just kind of... Cut Posted. Yeah, there's no need to try and be on the cutting edge anymore. No, which, you know, which is fine, but also, Christ, I kind of suffered through this a bit. Uh, this is very, very 1988 as well. Yes. Like, who gives a shit? No one cares. Someone's going to buy it and keep her in diamonds, mm. you know, and uh, she's earned yeah. it, you know, fair enough, but uh, nobody needs this in their life, do they? But anyway, Sarah... Mm saxophone solo <laughs> saxophone solo fuck me yeah in our chart music wiki pop crazy youngsters there is an entire yes. section entitled Sarah B's search for the last great sax solo <laughs> <laughs> thanks to a request you made in chart music's passim and currently it only goes as far as the best by Tina Turner in September of 1989 so I believe we have a new winner I don't know I, I might endorse that as a fact but I, I'm not happy about it <laughs> Of course, the thing to say here is, of course, unless you know better. Unless you know better. Got a white bloke with his sleeves rolled up. A very Cronenberg advert, isn't it? Oh, God, it's so funny. The way that this is edited is, um, you know, there's this kind of kind of really grindy ballad going on. And, um, you know, it just it sounds like the big serious ballad in the middle of a regional theatre production of Puss in Boots, mm. you know, where Puss, yes. Puss has <laughs> lost his boots. And she's there <laughs> smiling away in a slightly incongruous fashion. And, and then suddenly there's a sax man, the way that it, it's just like, oh, yeah. oh he's, where, where did you come from, you stealthy sax man? <laughs> he just suddenly appears. It's very much like um, the, the Saturday Night Live show short the curse from uh, about 12 years ago um i don't know if you've seen this it features john ham right. who's best known from mad men but is also a brilliant comic mm. actor as, as this oiled up sax man very much uh, he's he's obviously uh, like tim capello who was tina turner's sax man through the 80s and 90s and also mm. uh, most notably the oiled up sax man from the lost boys right he's the one true original oiled up sax man anyway um <laughs> basically uh, andy sandberg is going about his business and wherever he goes john ham will suddenly explode through a wall oil up with a saxophone and looks at the camera and goes Sergio <laughs> everywhere he goes and he goes to his therapist he's like oh my god I, I don't know what's I, I think I'm going mad everywhere I go this oiled up sexy sax man just bursts yeah. through the wall and it's like are you sure and then of course it, he bursts through the wall kind of on top of the therapist it just gets worse and worse and worse until his wife actually gives birth to the full-sized oiled up sexy sax man Sergio it's very disturbing anyway that's inevitably now what happens when I see Diana Ross get interrupted in, you know, what she was doing by his <laughs> She gets very excited by his arrival, doesn't she? Mm. She gets a jacket off. She gets a jacket yes. off, throws, throws it to the ground and starts spinning around and stuff. Yes. Yeah, Which yeah. is really good stagecraft, but um, also, yeah, it doesn't really seem doesn't seem warranted does no. it he, he is a sexy sax man in, in a leather waistcoat and i was kind of skeptical and i you know I, I i don't know if i'm a spoil sport for this but i just thought is he really a sax man Ooh. because he's just too buff and I, I looked into it and on on the record on the album force behind the power the saxophonist is john helliwell of Supertramp. okay right. And I Google image searched John Helliwell of Supertramp. Oiled up and muscular and Supertramp. They don't go together, <laughs> no. do they? 
John Halliwell looks, with the best will in the world, like a geography supply teacher, um, or, you know, basically a member of Supertramp. Yes. Right? So this guy, the sexy sax man on top of the pops, I'm watching his fingers, and I'm sceptical about him even being a saxophonist. He looks more like a hunk from Central Casting, whose next job is probably, you know, the Diet Coke ad, where a load of office women look at him taking his top off on a construction mm. site. Yeah. I think that's what it is. That's what's going on here. Or on a scooter in a Gino Ginelli advert. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think Tim Capello actually kind of set the standard for the uh, sexy sax man right. at this time. You know, people were just like, that's what you need. You know, you can't just have some schlub playing the saxophone. It's such mm. a raucously bawdy instrument, you know, yeah. that you've got to get out the uh, the banana boat and uh, <laughs> get slippery. Um, just something else about Diana Ross here. Obviously, consummate performer and, you know, radiantly beautiful. But one of the things, I'm really sorry to say this, one of the things I didn't enjoy about this performance, I enjoyed how much she seemed to enjoy it and how mm. together she is and how she knows completely what she's doing and what she yeah. wants to project. But there's this kind kind of extravagant graciousness about her this is kind of mm. regal bearing that i mm. find slightly overbearing mm. especially when it's such a nothing track yeah it just doesn't really seem warranted when you see tina turner tina turner is this very kind of impressive imperious presence but then she's like yeah it's tina time get on down yeah and this is very sort of removed and very sort of um it's the nature of the song you know it's only appropriate but just her whole diana ross thing is sort of you may worship me and it's like well i have the utmost respect for diana ross but i don't want to feel like i'm supposed to curtsy at this Mm. point do you know what i mean (laughs) yeah is that a terrible thing to say i really do respect her extremely and she's made some of the greatest records ever but uh, oh absolutely yeah i mean Mm. it's remarkable you know someone who sings on some of my favorite records of the 60s you know the happening um Mm. the 70s ain't no mountain high enough or love hangover the 80s upside down but her appearance on this show just makes me go yeah she turns up you know i suppose it's largely just the song it is a nothing song heart don't change my mind written by robbie buchanan and and diane warren diane warren of course just wrote fucking everything you know Mm. nothing's gonna stop us now by starship unbreak my heart tony braxton don't want to miss a thing by aerosmith you know just those enormous songs (laughs) so but it's it's just a really bog standard song about trying to summon up the resolve to leave someone it makes no sense to stay living my life in yesterday i'm leaving i'm leaving and i'm begging you heart don't change my mind oh heart be strong this time blah 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 Mm. originally recorded by streisand in 84 and right of course streisand was the absolute queen of grown-up divorce pop in that era and yeah this this is that it's it's grown-up divorce pop and i guess there's a demographic who want that with their top of the pops not me not then and not now and yeah i just thought bore off diana ross and i felt weird for thinking that because yeah yeah, she's done so much great stuff Mm. yeah also just the production of this track is so kind of sloppy and she does have this slight edge to a voice like a slightly reedy kind of edge and it just cuts through too harshly it's like a massive cleaver through a cheesecake Mm, and there's like nothing underneath so it doesn't display her ability to its best it's like this is not the best use no biscuit there's no buttery biscuit base (laughs) it's kind of soggy soggy cheesecake you know do you know it's not even on her wikipedia discography if you go on there this this single it's not there (gasps) yeah it's been written out of history and maybe for the best 
So the following week, Heart Don't Change My Mind entered the chart at number 31 and then dropped four places to number 35. One at number nine, Depeche Mode, I Feel You. This week at number eight, Falling Six, Take That, Why Can't I Wake Up With You? And at number seven, the highest new entry, Suede, Animal Nitrate. At number six, down two, Whitney Houston, I'm Every Woman. And at number five, the brilliant O'Carolina from Shaggy. At number four, Lenny Kravitz, you saw him earlier, Are You Gonna Go My Way? And at number three, Annie Lennox, double A-side, Little Bird and Love Song for a Vampire. At two, Michael Jackson, Give In To Me. Which means still at number one, two unlimited, this is No Limit. Franklin. Still off camera, pictures straight into the top ten with absolutely fuck all fanfare. And right at the other end comes this week's number one, No Limit by Two Unlimited. Formed in Antwerp, Belgium by Jean-Paul de Costa and Phil Wilde in 1989, Biz Niz were a dance production duo who landed a UK hit when Don't Miss the Party Line got to number 7 for two weeks in April of 1990. In May of 1991, they worked up an instrumental dance track called Get Ready For This, which rocked the club scene of Peepoo Land but got no further. So, deciding they needed some rap on it, they called upon someone they'd already worked with on a business demo, the Amsterdam rapper Ray Schlingard, who was dividing his time between getting the party started and working as a chef at Shiphole Airport. They lobbed him a demo tape and told him to get on with it. When he returned his version, they were surprised that along with some rap, there was also some bird. Anita Doth, who was working as a secretary in an Amsterdam police station, possibly for Van der Volk. De Costa and Wilde were so delighted at what they heard, they decided to put them together, and lo, two Unlimited were born. Their debut single, Get Ready For This, was a continent-wide smash, spending two non-consecutive weeks at number two over here in October and November of 1991. They followed that up with another number two hit, Twilight Zone, in January of 1992, and a number four with Workaholic in May of 92. This single... The follow-up to Magic Friend, which got to number 11 in August of 1992, is the lead cut from their second LP, No Limits, which is due out in May. It was put out in the last week of January and immediately smashed into the chart as the highest new entry at number four, then nipped up the following week to number two, and a week later finally obliterated the ten-week reich of I Will Always Love You by Whitney fucking Houston. Yes! Yes! Go on, Two Unlimited. (laughs) This is its fourth week atop the summit of, um, well, there aren't any mountains in Belgium or Holland, (laughs) and since they've already appeared in the top of the 
Pop Studio three times already to do this song. It's finally time to get the video out. And panel, if we've done one thing on our chart music odyssey, it's giving thanks and praise and final rightful respect to the Belgians, don't you think? Two-man sound, Belgian world in action making mouldy old dough a hit, Jacques Brel doing Terry Jacks a favour, and now this. And we haven't even got to Technotronic or Plastic Bertrand yet. Mm. Come on, Belgium! <laughs> yeah, um, I was fully behind this, uh, mm. even though it doesn't seem like the kind of thing I would have been into at the time. No. And it caused all kinds of trouble. <laughs> uh, basically, um, you know, this, this sort of music was really becoming dominant in the charts at this time. And I kind of loved it. Or I loved a mm. g- good old chunk of it. I think some of the greatest records of the 90s are uh, Dreamer by Living Joy. Oh, or yeah. You Sure Do by uh, Strike. Mm. Or Baby D, Let Me Be Your Fantasy. And stuff oh, like yes. that, you know. Uh, and... Uh, that's all one in my head and uh, anyway never mind <laughs> um, is it can't you remember granddad it's got a sort of piano-y breakdown with oh that narrows it down a bit <laughs> no but this bit where it all stops for ages and it's all just like rain falling and this diva really going for it and right uh, uh, it's not not naked in the rain uh, no, oh, set you free. Uh, oh, set you free. Life. Yeah, it's Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And she's she's uh, in the video. She's uh, I, I don't know why I know oh, this from the, char- from the chart show. Probably she's sticking out of the. Isn't um, it Entrance? Oh, is it? I thought it was Entrance. <laughs> it, yes, Entrance. No, you're right. <laughs> and set you free by Entrance. There you go. I've been in a fucking care home listening to your two. I expect David Van Day to pitch up any minute now. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, yeah. It's all very sort of. Very kind of feather light, new disco, post rave yeah. kind of uh, mm. twinkly. Yeah, I love to hear those whenever they pop up. It always gives me a, a tingle. I thought it was the glam rock of its mm. day. I thought it was like, you know, these really brutal, simple terrace chants. Yes. That, you know, they, they weren't for music snobs, but they were really straight and to the point. Yeah, very stompy. Yeah, very stompy indeed. But dainty with it, I think. Yes. So I lobbied to do a special edition of Melody Maker just about that. Yes. And Melody Maker, of course, was an indie rock magazine mainly. <laughs> but I, I just thought we're, we're a weekly paper and we are a music paper and we, mm. we have a certain duty to cover cultural phenomena and i thought euro disco yeah. or euro pop euro dance whatever you want to call it was a, a really important 90s cultural phenomenon so i kind of took control for one issue and i interviewed to unlimited i also interviewed culture beat mr vane that's a fucking banger come on mm. yeah <laughs> um and yeah, Culture Beat, I remember Culture Beat being really bemused when I started asking them any details at all about the music or the lyrics because, <laughs> you know, they're like, well, we don't fucking know, you know. <laughs> oh, God, that's yeah. become a, um, a regular joke in our house where uh, if anybody wants something, it's, um, I know what I want and I want it now. <laughs> I want food because I'm Mr. Food. <laughs> you can do it with anything, and it's so dumb and uh, annoying. It's brilliant. God, how was lockdown in your house? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was a hoot. 
<laughs> yeah, so um, I interviewed uh, Ray and Anita. Um, Anita Dels, as she was known at that time. I don't know. What, right. I don't know where Anita Doth comes from. I don't, I don't know what, which is the correct one. Uh, but I, I have seen both. But but we called it Anita Dels because I guess that's what it said in the press release that we mm-hmm. were sent. Um, I went to this really fucking bizarre event at, it was either Earl's Court or Olympia, one of those big ones. Um, it was mm. the Flora Aerobathon, um, sponsored right. by sponsored by Flora Margarine, and there was a massive fucking oh, was Terry Wogan there. No, but there was. <laughs> there- no. I see where you're going with that. There, there was a massive tub of margarine on the stage, like uh, 20 feet wide and 8 feet tall. Just a giant fucking tub of margarine. Did it have margarine in it? Um, I didn't get to climb over the edge and have a look. Oh, but man. everyone had to perform in front of it. First rule of journalism is find out how much margarine's in a massive <laughs> tub. It was uh, really odd. There, there were 20,000 people there. And they're all doing. Right. There was like it wasn't Mister Motivator. It was a fake Mister Motivator, shaking motivator, oh. uh, putting everyone through their paces. Mister Encourager. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, and every now and then, um, an actual pop star would come on stage. Uh, so um, E Seventeen were there um, doing whatever oh. their, their new single. I guess was it Steam, Steam. or Deep? Yes. Yeah, or was it Deep? Deep. Yeah. So you, they they were. There. You can rest upon my chest. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was that. Um, there were other people. Oh, did they get about- in the? T- if they're E17 and you're doing that, man, you, the first thing you do is get in the tub of floor and just start rubbing it into your chest, <laughs> being all homoerotic and suggestive. Yeah. Did a sexy sax man at some point burst out of it? All covered. Having, yeah. having gone in dry, you know. <laughs> See, th- this is why they needed you kind of stage managing it. Um, mm. But there were all these sort of like sort of second division celebs like Chris Quinton from Coronation Street Ooh. hanging around and, uh, and Daniela Westbrook from EastEnders. Of course. Uh, who was soon to get married to one of E17, I think, at that time. Mm. David Kidd Jensen was there. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Bless and, him. Uh, page three girl Suzanne Mitzi. Ooh. remember her. And she, she was in a pop trio at that time called Rumour Has It. It right, was yes. really the strangest event I ever covered. But too <laughs> unlimited are there. And, you know, it's all just in a day's work for them. And they're, they're, they're total pros. You know, they take it in their stride. Tom Sheehan, the legendary photographer, who's just done all the sort of proper rock stars and everything, mm. just comes along with me and, and he's taking photos of Ray and Anita and you know she's sort of snarling and clawing at the air and, and he's throwing sort of mean sinister shapes and all of that <laughs> and it, yeah fucking hell I found them quite interesting to talk to you because mm. alright they can't compete with David Yao for lyrical depth but they were interesting people that just mm. their experience of what the fuck it's like being into Unlimited at that time was yeah. something that I wanted to find out about we talked about stuff like the, the drug laws in Amsterdam because that's where they're from you know and and all that kind of business and I thought it was really worth doing were you massively complimentary to them Simon I think I had just the right amount of distance Ah, but I I sort of I I fed them questions which allowed them to come out of it in in a good light they should have called the article flora and fauna oh right there we go see what I did there we did there yeah yeah I mean wasn't it shit I I think that's more of a subheading than a than a type you workshop yeah I, I can't I can't um, sugarcoat it I did have a massive crush on Anita so you know oh, yeah. I, I wasn't going to be too mean um, but I, I put it to them that you know there was this nickname they had too untalented that people hilariously yes. used to say and, and that there was this perception they're brainless puppets and uh, I found the interview and Anita says "Of co- I'm not going to say of course <laughs> she says of course because it cannot be true that uh, two people have so much success something must be wrong either we don't mm. see 
oh, we've got masks on or whatever. In fact, mm. the producers write the music. We write the lyrics. It's 50-50. Now, you might think yeah. I've let them hang themselves. I've given them enough rope there. So that yes. They write the lyrics. Like, Come on, yeah. techno, 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 techno. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they basically faced snobbery from rockist types and from dance purists. They, they were getting yes. it from both sides, really. Yeah. Shot by both sides. I thought um, No Limit, even though it's played to fucking death, it's an absolute banger. You can't argue mm. with it. It's it's just no. this kind of force of nature. And I, I thought um, Let the Beat Control Your Body was even better. That was just a fantastic track. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I wondered what the great Simon Reynolds would have thought of this. So I, I went up into the attic earlier on today and fetched down his, um, his book Energy Flash, which is, you know, the yeah. history of dance music. And Simon, in that book, does make a case for kind of hooligan techno almost just like really really simple techno tracks with with like a, a, a grinding riff that goes over and over and over and just grinds you into, into submission and i thought mm. that part of him might approve of two unlimited but now nah, they're barely a footnote in that book so no. yeah yeah but mm. one of the upshots of me interviewing them first of all there was a massive backlash on the capital b backlash pages of melody maker that mm. almost almost a, a, a whole week's worth of, of, of letters just slagging me off and slagging off the paper yeah. for, for for doing all that stuff yeah it was safe to say that that issue of melody maker didn't join the stack of all the other melody makers in the student bed since of 1993 exactly yeah yeah and Within the paper, uh, our dance music experts, uh, Ben Turner and Push, really nice guys, and they, they basically ran the dance section at the back of the paper. They were really pissed off that the words, well, the, the word four times, techno, 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 had been yes. put on the front of Melody Maker emblazoned across a photo of Two Unlimited. Because <laughs> to them, the word techno was something precious and, uh, mm. you know, important and intelligent and progressive. And they thought that, uh, too unlimited were not worthy of that word so from then on in the pages of melty maker ben and push changed the spelling of techno their type of techno to t-e-k-n-o oh. because they didn't want anything to do with it i thought that was really funny but bless them for that this track uh, that i i think there's a little joke in there that's been lying dormant for years that right. no one's noticed there's a bit where ray goes let me hear you say yeah and yeah. You, you hear a crowd going no Yes, <laughs> I swear they're going no. Really? Yeah, they're not going. Yeah, yeah, they're going, no. No, it's just a very. It's quite a distant sort of hiss of like yeah. Yeah. I think they're just saying yeah in 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 Dutch. <laughs> I've gone on about. Uh, too unlimited too long it's got to be your turn now uh, no such thing Simon yeah. no such thing I mean I said earlier in this episode that I was hoovering up the local pirate stations at the time but the minute they started playing proper techno fucking radio's coming right off I had right. no time for that bollocks but this sort of thing when it came out it, it amused me because it was yeah it was clearly glam bony m yeah and it pissed off no end of people the minute i heard it i thought well well this is going to be number one yeah no fucking problem yeah i mean if i was 12 or something yeah i'd have a right old stomp around my bedroom <laughs> to this it does kind of sound like kids music superficially but yeah it's you can't really write it off as a simplistic record for babies you know because it is more deceptively interesting i mean at the time i have to admit that i found it annoying and stupid but I have come to appreciate it mm. and I'm, I'm now very fond of it um, yeah. I can't 
can't imagine any circumstances under which I'd actually put it on, but that's, you know, that's not the point. <laughs> um, I, was, I was glad to see it here at number one. Musically, it, it is, yeah, it, it's not really techno, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. There's kind of an interesting thing happening because it is very... Eh, 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 yeah. But there's there's interesting stuff going on. In the first 32 bars, there's different synth patches playing the same hook. Mm. So it's actually more varied than, than it feels. It's like thing comes in, then does the same thing in a different way. That goes away. Different thing happens again. It's like they're swapping in and out different colour filters, mm. which mm. is quite unusual. Yeah. Um, and there's also this, um, in the chorus, there's the kind of classic house drone in the background, which uh, sounds quite like Open Your Mind by Yuzura, which yeah. is a track uh. that gets played quite a lot in this house in various circumstances and there's a sort of phantom baseline like it's, it doesn't really have a baseline but mm. you can sort of you know you, you put one in yourself mm. it sort of reads as a hymn to hedonism because of the musical context because it's mm. a dance track and because of the delivery because of like how powerful it is and how she's got this very soulful voice which is being deployed to mm. the same sort of effect that other people were doing at the time yeah basically it, it's a song about achieving your true potential and powering through to greatness and it had to get to number one to prove it was true mm. so it is and i love it when this happens it is a demonstration of the theory it advances. Ooh, mm. yes. <laughs> or, of course, to Anita, who uh, has survived cancer more than once, um, mm, she yeah. now considers it it's, it's something that she loves because she feels it's about overcoming adversity. Oh, she said, you know, uh, it's such an explosion of positivity and we are limitless mm. beings. <laughs> they do what they want and they do it with pride. Yeah. Al, that was the last line of my article as well. It had to be, didn't it? Of course. <laughs> they do what they want and they do it with pride. And what they want in this video is to uh, be in a massive pinball table. Yes. Which looks mint. Yeah, it's fucking brilliant. Proper old school pinball table as well. Yes. I think there is actually technically a limit to pinball or they, they will throw you out. Pinball, man. I fucking loved it because yeah. I, I worked in a student union, as, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, and uh, on the second floor of the building, we had uh, a Robocop pinball machine and we yes. had Monday night football. And my, yes. the first thing I'd do in the morning, I would uh, go to the cafe, get um, a hummus and sweet corn bap and forget about my office. Mm. I would just sit at those machines for about two hours. And if anybody needed me, they knew where they'd find me. And, and I, yeah, I can still hear in my head like i'd buy that for a dollar and that kind of yeah. stuff yeah. <laughs> just the voice going over and over but if there was a two unlimited actual pinball machine fuck me oh fucking hell yeah. yes just like playing their songs over and when the ball goes down it goes tickle, 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 tickle. <laughs> yeah no yeah, yeah yeah if you fuck up it goes no fucking hell. i miss pinball mm. i hate those new pinball tables you see in pubs that have made as small as possible it's no what no that's no fucking good oh. Oh, mm. I'm depressed now oh but cheer up Al because Two Unlimited were, were so lovely in this in yes this they're so they're so pretty and they're being hard but they're so adorable yeah. and they're called Ray and Anita as well man yeah. yeah which sounds like they should be on Opportunity Knocks in 1972 <laughs> yeah or Bullseye or the neighbours on the other side of George and Mildred <laughs> yeah they should be like my dad's friends like I say to my dad oh what did you do last week yeah. oh yeah we just went to have dinner with Ray and Anita you know yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, saw the holiday yeah, yeah. yeah. They've been to Gibraltar, you yeah. know. There's some very good hand movements in this video. Oh, the yeah. absolute bare cheek of invoking uh, no valley too deep, no mountain too high in the lyrics. It's, that's that's yeah. next level. Mm. But yeah, so. Um, Same episode goes, as Diana, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. when uh, just to emphasize this no valley too deep, she points down, and then no mountain too high, points up. You see? 
Mm. And he does uh, mm. at some point, um, Ray, uh, who is dressed in uh, a very fetching combination of baggy PVC, which has now come back, actually. Right. Yeah, yeah. You're allowed to have baggy PVC once again. Um, and he does a, a very good reprimanding finger wag <laughs> to camera to, to indicate there are no limits. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, no, no. No. Yeah. <laughs> He's got no top on under his leather coat, but he can get away with it, you know, so fair play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're both very saucy, aren't they? But on, overall, there is something very sort of clean and innocent about it. Yeah, it's it. wholesome. Like, it's yeah. not... Yes. It's, it's quite wholesome. It's not actually very drugs. No. I think, you know, they're probably being Dutch and being from Amsterdam, you know, they can choose to or not and it's probably not such a big deal, you know. It's like people who live in Blackpool never had a stick of <laughs> in their life. Yeah. It's definitely more sentier than salvia, yeah. I think. Anything else to say? My interview was certainly kinder to them than the Chris Morris interview. Oh, yes. Have you heard that? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. Right. So, basically, if you haven't heard it, because uh, um, I think Chris Morris was on Radio 1 at that time. Yeah. I think that must be how he had access to them. Mm. So, they go in completely innocently, you know, they, they, they go in wholeheartedly thinking, oh, well, you know, this, this guy, Chris Morris, wants to interview us. Our English friends yeah. want to talk to us. Yeah, yeah. So, they go in and, and he pretends that he thinks that there's no limit we reach for the sky is a tribute to britain's world war ii flying ace douglas barder <laughs> <laughs> whose uh, who, whose biography and uh, you know a biopic was was called reach for the sky and he starts uh, thanking them and, and congratulating them for that and they are completely baffled they, they don't know what he's, <laughs> what he's talking about and then he gets really offended saying that's so disrespectful how do you not know who douglas barder is uh, i think you should apologize right now and and dedicate it to him and they're really flustered and they go there's no limit we reach for the sky that one's for you doug <laughs> <laughs> so no limit would spend a fifth and final week at number one before being usurped by oh carolina by shaggy and would keep why can't i wake up with you by take that and give in to me by michael jackson off number one the follow-up, Tribal Dance, would spend two weeks at number four in May and they'd go on to have eight more top 40 hits, three of which made the top ten. But when their five-year contract came up for renewal in 1996, Schlingard and Doth had had enough and walked away. So DeCosta and Wilde just recruited two more people and carried on regardless. Hmm. By 2009, after doing PAs and student union performances separately, the original two decided to reunite under the name Ray and Anita uh. and then linked back up with DeCosta and were given their name back, which they've used to this day. Oh, that's nice. Although Anita stepped down again in 2016. Two unlimited at number one. That's it for some of the pops this week. Join Tony Dalty next week when live in the studio we'll have Cliff Richard with his brand new song. Comic relief, don't forget it is next Friday. Get your red nose. We'll see you here, Top of the Pops, next week. Good night. And that, me dears, closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards, you may ask? Well, BBC One kicks on with Michelle's daughter Vicky getting kidnapped outside her school in EastEnders. Then David Attenborough gets to see a gang of 60 chimpanzees hunting and killing smaller monkeys for their tea in Wildlife on One. 
Louisa Ricks and coffee wanker Gareth Hunt play mismatched <laughs> neighbours in the sitcom Side by Side. Then it's the nine o'clock news, the Lenny Henry sitcom Chef, Question Time, the American crime series Law and Order, Ramadan Call to Prayer, the weather, and then they close down at five past midnight. Ramadan Call to Prayer is a sort of Muslims talking about what Ramadan means to them and not a live broadcast from Mecca, although I wish the BBC had done that because that would have winded up some gammons. BBC Two has just started First Sight, which focuses on bullying in the office. Then Muriel Gray whoops it up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming for the Ski Ponce programme, The Snow Show. Then it's Top Gear, followed by French and Saunders having a go at Guns N' Roses and Ingmar Bergman. The second part of A Labour of Love, the documentary series about childcare in the early 20th century. Staggering stories of Ferdinand de Bargos, Newsnight, The Late Show, The Weather and a bit of Open University Ramble. ITV is showing that episode of 3D with the HIV positive vicar, along with a piece on Emma McCune, the convent girl who married the leader of the Sedan People's Liberation Army. After the bill, Arthur Daly organises a football match with the local police in a bid to keep the Winchester Club open in Minder. Then it's Disguisers, where Adam Holloway goes undercover to investigate care in the community. After news at 10 and regional news in your area, it's more snooker, the equaliser and night time. Prisoner cell blockage and Casey Kasem, basically. Right. Channel 4 eventually comes out of Channel 4 News and goes into Close to Home, which is about how fucked off the people of North Wales are at English cunts coming over here with their funny smelling food and Morris dancing and all that. After The Secret Life Of looks at the word processor, it's the last in the series of Turning the Screws, the documentary series about life in Wandsworth Prison. That's followed by a team-building session in Drop the Dead Don't Care, the new series Harry Enfield's Guide to Opera, a repeat of The Avengers, a repeat of Dispatches, and they finish off at 1am with a repeat of the Dick Powell Theatre. So, me dears, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? This bit is always such a headbend, isn't it? Because hmm. is it you as you were in 1993, but somehow still at school, hmm. like an imaginary version of you as a 10-year-old, but cool... You now pretending to be young. I don't know. Um, me, as a small child, I'd be talking about rage because swears. Mm. Um, and I bet a few kids actually got detention after this. <laughs> and also suede because fucking wow. Yeah. I'd just be talking about suede, I think. The best band in the world. I'd just be thinking, fucking hell, yeah, the future is theirs. <laughs> I was probably saying exactly that at the Melody Maker office. What are we buying on Saturday? Um, well, imaginary cool me, suede, but uncool, more realistic me, Lenny Kravitz. Um, I guess I didn't really buy records in those days. I just phoned up and got them delivered for free. <sighs> but yeah, I guess... Rage Against the Machine, mm. Suede, and Two Unlimited, yeah. And what does this episode tell us about March of 1993? thing is, with, with this question, is I feel like I always want to answer the same, which is that there's always something, even if this is a kind of weird gutter in between the road of rave and the pavement of Britpop, mm. there's always going to be something interesting, and, mm. and Madonna. What we're meant to say <laughs> on any sort of documentary that you see these days is well Britpop was just around the corner and then the world yeah. changed and all that kind of thing yeah. and yeah it kind of was but 
Suede aren't number one. Suede are number fucking seven, you know, mm. much as I love them. Number one is too unlimited. Yeah. You know, that's the real 90s. And people like Hadaway, What is Love? You know, that's that's a bigger deal than anything Suede ever did. And I fucking adore Suede. So mm. I do think this this kind of rewriting of history that, that, that goes on. So, mm. yeah, I think uh, this episode of Top of the Pops tells us that the real 1993 was a lot more mixed than we are led to believe by historians. Yeah, and not as shit as we were led to believe either. Yeah. You don't look at this and just think, oh, God, I hope Oasis and Blur turn up soon and sweep all this away. No, not really. I suppose I was a bit frustrated by Ferry and Diana Ross turning up on what's meant to be a sort of young person's pop show. Yeah. Oh, and also fucking Right Said Fred and their horrible comic relief thing. That can absolutely get to fuck. Yeah. And don't think I forgot about you, Pudsy Bear, just because it's not children in need. <laughs> I fucking hate Pudsy as well, you know. He can fuck right off. And that, pop craze youngsters, brings us to the end of another episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do now is pump out the usual promotional flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at chartmusictotp, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Tickets still available for our chart music all day at Birmingham Town Hall, Saturday 13th of January 2024. Oh, it feels so funny saying that, 2024. Yeah, exciting though. See you there. Yeah. Mm. Thank you very much, Sarah B. Cheers, lad. God bless you, Simon Price. Ah, bless you too. My name's Al Needham, and I really hope you've been listening to a podcast about Top of the Pops and not accidentally listening to audio of me having a massive wank. (laughs) (laughs) Sharp music. Down to a 28 on the official countdown. This is Bruno. Stand by for another new entry. That's next. Rage Against the Machine. Killing in the name is in at number 27. Rage Against the Machine, killing in the name. That's a new entry at 27. Calling all pop craze youngsters. You asked for it. We were offered it. So we said, all right then, fuck it, why not? Saturday. January the 13th, 2024, Birmingham Town Hall, chart music live all day. Yes, pop craze youngsters, chart music is getting on down to Benny Tan with the power trio of Simon Price, Neil Kulkarnay and Al Needham for a full day of chart music ramble. We commence with the return of Here Comes Quizum, the chart music pub quiz. And then, a three-hour live episode of chart music. And then, 
we round off the evening with a chart music disco where we dance the night away to the white hot sounds of Joy Sarney and Two Man Sound. It do be the complete chart music experience, Miss Diane, and can be yours for a mere £15. So, see that internet, mashabit.ly slash cm24. That's bit.ly slash cm24. Lay your money down and be prepared to be pop crazed all day long in beautiful downtown Birmingham. Hey, piss troll, we're coming for you. 